welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Dr. Timothy Fong, a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA. Dr. Fong specializes in addiction, and today I am asking him about gambling disorders and why they are becoming increasingly prevalent in today's society. I ask him about how these disorders develop, what the signs are that someone's gambling is becoming a problem, and what impact gambling can have on our mental health. While it might be referred to as a hidden illness because there are no obvious signs or symptoms, the addiction is very similar to that of drugs and alcohol. And I think it's important we understand the science behind why gambling is so addictive. So will you describe the current trends in gambling, addiction and behaviour, particularly focusing on casinos, sports, bettings and online options? I usually always like to start off with just defining gambling. Right. As we think of what is gambling. And of course, traditionally, we think of it as playing games of chance and casinos and the lottery and betting on sports. But it's more than that. Right. Gambling, as I defined it, is part of the human condition. It's part of what we do, what we're built with. It's essentially putting something of value at risk to be lost on an event of uncertain outcome in the hopes of obtaining a larger reward. Now, that's a mouthful, but traditionally that means it's a combination of risk-taking, it's a combination of uh, winning and losing. It's all about trying to make your life a little bit better, faster. Traditionally, we think of gambling as gambling with money, but it could be other things, right? Gambling time or gambling on other things in your life. Here in Los Angeles, we I think about what freeway should I take to get to my destination? That's a gamble. If I take the wrong one, I lose time. Uh, we have other people gambling. I will bet you, Pandora, that I can run faster. And if I win, then I'll do your laundry. That's actually a form of gambling and things like that. So that's my short introduction to kind of just what gambling is and the kind of things that we, uh, we are doing here uh, at the UCLA Gambling Studies Program. Will you just talk about more about what you do particularly and who you focus on and the program that you've set up at UCLA? I, I started back in medical school in the mid-90s, you know, before the internet was even born. And at that time, the late 90s, there really was not in America a lot of gambling uh, as much as it is available now. So in 2022, almost every state in America has some form of legalized gambling. We have online gambling on our phones. We have mobile sports betting on our phones. And we have a culture now that has embraced and accepted gambling as something acceptable and permissible among a lot of the states. There in the UK, very similar. You have gambling everywhere. The betting shops on the um, uniforms of all uh, the football players. So back 20 years ago, there was great interest uh, with myself and Dr. Richard Rosenthal about how can we understand gambling and its impact on public health? As we see gambling expand, 
what does it do to the body? What did it do to the brain? What did it do to the mind? What did it do to the neighborhoods and community and culture? So in 2005, that's where we put a group of us together here at UCLA to figure out those questions and answer those questions about uh, how does gambling impact us? And that's really the work that we do. So we study all things related to gambling. We study gambling addiction, gambling disorder, otherwise known as gambling addiction, uh, what causes it, what, what's the uh, risk factors, and more importantly, how do we treat it? But we also study just gambling in general, like the rise of sports betting. What does that do to people? What does that do to our society? What are the public health impacts of gambling? So our program, the UCLA Gambling Studies Program, I like to divide into really four areas, research, clinical care, treatment advocacy, uh, or community engagement, and education of people who want to know more about gambling. So those are really kind of the areas that we, we divide our time in gambling. And there's all sorts of interesting questions. Again, why do certain people develop gambling disorders and others do not? What are the impact of having all this gambling on young people? This is the first generation that's being born in the last 10 years. They're going to grow up with gambling on their phone. Uh, what's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years with gambling. You know, lots of very interesting things that we see. Just this year, as an example, you think about just the massive expansion of sports betting in America, but also just this idea of financial tech and, and new trading formats, things like Crypto.com and Webull and Robinhood. And I don't know what the apps they use in the UK are, but, you know, these are financial trading apps that you can use to invest and essentially they are forms of gambling. So very interesting uh, areas for us to study and, and move forward to have good scientific uh, discourse and discussion about. Yeah, that's a really interesting point actually. Cryptocurrencies of Ethereum and you know Bitcoin. I mean, you hear about these youngsters now who are making an absolute fortune by getting involved in it. And it will be very, very interesting to see whether it becomes an addictive behavior. And actually, it's kind of deemed as being acceptable and quite intelligent at the moment to gamble on the stock market and gamble on crypto. But actually, when does it become a problem? When can you identify that someone's become a gambling addict as opposed to just gambling at leisure? And that's a great question. And I wish we had a blood test. I wish we had a brain scan that could show us clearly the differences between someone who gambles recreationally and without problems versus someone who has gambling addiction, gambling disorder. So we start with first just the definition. So gambling addiction and gambling disorder, in my mind, as we use it, is a continued pattern of gambling behavior despite harmful consequences. So like any other form of addiction, you keep doing it over and over and over and over despite damage to your body, to your brain, to your mind, to your life, to your family, to your relationships. So as we think about gambling addiction, of course, we open up our textbooks and we know that it's in the same chapter as all the other addictive disorders, alcohol, tobacco, cannabis, methamphetamine, opioids, you name it. So we think of it as another form of an addictive disorder, but there's just no substance being ingested. And I think when people say, well, how can you be addicted if there's no drugs or alcohol? I think that speaks to how we're not teaching people what addiction really is. Addiction doesn't have to be a substance. Addiction is a behavior. Now, the behavior of taking the substance, that's the addiction. In gambling, the behavior is actually pulling down the slot machine, putting the wager out, or 
hitting the buttons on your phone to engage in that behavior. And I think that's the real difference that we have to think about. Oftentimes I'll say to family and friends who are curious, I'll say, if gambling brings more joy and fun and freedom into your life, it's not a problem. If it brings you connecting with others, that's entertainment. That's not a problem or a sign of addiction. If though your gambling creates damage and harm, stress, emotional pain, doubt, misery, pain, physical stuff, then that is a sign of potentially a gambling addiction or gambling problem. That doesn't mean necessarily you have this condition, but it's definitely a sign, it's a worrisome sign that there potentially is an unhealthy relationship there. I think most folks with gambling addiction recognize there's something going on that's not healthy, but they're not quite able to identify what I have as an addiction. They say instead, oh, the reason I have so much problems with my life because of gambling is because I have bad luck or I have a spouse that doesn't understand what I like to do or I have, you know, just not enough time to stay at the table. If I just stayed longer, I'd win. And I think those are the sorts of things that, that, that get confusing because by definition, those are actually signs and symptoms of gambling addiction rather than something completely different. I somewhat liken it to an exercise addiction because it's a similar mindset, really. You get a dopamine hit. And unfortunately, as we know, with addictive patterns in the brain, the dopamine hit has to sort of increase to get the same amount of satisfaction from it. So it becomes a trap because you need to do more and more and more and more to get the same amount of satisfaction. And then you quickly feel like you're imprisoned by it. And I mean, you are literally... A prisoner of your mind as I would describe it it is it's fascinating how cross-addictive behaviors work and I was I, wanting to ask you about that because when you see people who go into recovery for gambling addiction how do you help them and how do you treat them and how do you then ensure that they don't go and cross-addict so for example to then maybe pick up a an exercise addiction yeah. for example You know, those are terrific questions because they highlight the core of what we do. And because it's an addictive disorder, we treat it very similarly to what we do with tobacco, alcohol, substances, exercise. And it starts with uh, really helping individuals identify their condition and move forward on a path of recovery. I tend to look at recovery as comprised of a lot of different things maintaining healthy physical state, maintaining a healthy mental state, having a sense of purpose, usefulness, having a community, having a safe home, things like that. But like any other mental health condition, it starts with treating it from a biological, psychological, and a social approach. So you can't just give medications expected to go away. No, but that could be one part of it. Having individual therapy is essential to provide a safe space to work on all the things that drive addiction isolation, avoidance, depression, anxiety, uh, loneliness, boredom, impulsivity, all that stuff that only therapy can really help support and and recognize and develop insight and new ways to to imagine things. Oftentimes, I was telling like a a college student earlier this morning who I've seen, and, and he said to me, well, I don't even understand what mental health is. I said, you know, that's a great point. We just start with that. What are the components of mental health? your own thoughts, your own feelings, and your own behaviors. And what we do in treatment is try and get all those three lanes, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors corrected or restored to their point where they are healthier. 
so that you're not living your life with a lot of negative thoughts and you're not living 100% of your time with a lot of negative feelings and you're not doing all these negative behaviors that are hurtful for you. And I think that's really how I like to describe treatment is that we help folks with gambling addiction, again, get back on that path where we can reduce physical and emotional pain. A lot of times, the first thing people come into treatment, they say, Doc, I never want to stop gambling. I don't want to stop gambling. And I'll say to them, you know, listen, my goal is not to have you necessarily stop gambling because gambling, again, is something we do in our lives. Our goal is to help get through the emotional and physical pain you're in right now. And sometimes people are, are, are shocked. Well, how are you going to do that? And we talk about how we're going to do that by the biopsychosocial treatments. And again, you'll, you'll hear the recipe of recovery is so similar across all addictions, right? Healthy sleep, healthy nutrition, learning how to manage stress accepting negative thoughts and feelings as they come in and not turning to that behavior of gambling to try and squish and get rid of those negative thoughts and feelings and finding a community of other men and women who make you feel safe. I mean, these are all the roadmaps that work for all addictions. It's just hard sometimes to find that. And it's hard because when you have something like gambling, it's so immediate, it's so available, and it works really great eight days a week, right? As a, an emotional bandaid. And I think that's, that's the challenges that we face, but when recovery works, it's absolutely amazing. Your, your next part of the question, the, how do we stop people from crossing over? I think that's an area that's really important because it's the same brain. So it means that the same brain that responds to a, one type of addiction could very well respond to other types as well. But it's interesting, a lot of times it don't. You know, I've had gamblers who are like, I have no interest in alcohol or cocaine. But when it gets to exercise or spending money online, I'm really interested in that. So I think the way we think about it is that a lot of addictions are inside the same family, but they're relatives. That means they're not the same, they're individual. But you're absolutely right. We don't want coping skills and coping mechanisms done to an excessive amount that it creates problems. And all things moderation, right? The Greeks had it right. And that's definitely something we believe uh, is helpful for the human brain, uh, for sure. Yeah, moderation. I, if only we could uh, all master moderation, I think we'd be very, very sane human beings. But yeah, moving on. So, I mean, what do you think is the public health impact and the consequences of having a gambling disorder? No, when we first started this 20 years ago, I, I, I didn't frame gambling as a public health issue. You know, I didn't think of it like lead in the water or clean air or, you know, like smoking. I didn't think about all the things that happen in the, as you go about your life that can impact your, your physical and mental health. Now, when you think about gambling, it makes sense, right? You know, just imagine your day as you go about there in, in, in London or in England and how many advertisements you see for gambling or what you hear on the radio, or things that you see on television or on the internet talking about gambling. Think about just the gambling itself, how it has to be regulated, because as a product like food or water or alcohol, you want to ensure that you're engaging in, in a game that's fair, where you're not going to get cheated, where there isn't uh, you know, corruption. All these things are public health impacts. Uh, when I think about something as simple as like, jobs and money and taxes and regulation these are all the things that gambling industry have to answer to and have to do on the on the up and up even though gambling is very legal in a lot of parts of america there's still a lot of illegal and unregulated gambling and associated with that are things like crime and violence and 
really just things that are unfortunate, which is why gambling should, in my mind, be a regulated activity so that we can maximize public health, so that consumers are not preyed upon or not put into positions where they're playing games where it's it's tainted. Uh, at the same time, it's, I think it's important for consumers also to be educated early on about what the signs and symptoms of addiction and gambling addiction are and where they can go to get help. Again, we regulate so much of our human experience, right? What we see, what we eat, what we view, what we taste, you know, the food that we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the cars we drive, all these have rules and regulations that are part of the public health fabric. So it makes sense that a behavior like gambling that does have such profound implications on the body and families and society, we definitely should do that there as well. So and I think that's an area I, that's new to me over the last 10 years. But as physicians, that means we have one small part in that public health. But so many other people have a, a role in that public health impact of gambling too, right? From the gambling industry, parents, children, employers, advertisers, and the media, you name it. And I think about, as an example, wherever you work, there's usually alcohol and drug policies, right? But a lot of places of operations or places where people work don't have gambling policies. So I thought that was really interesting because like here in my office at UCLA, if I started drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes and using cannabis, all those are legal in my home. But technically, in my office inside UCLA, that's a violation of workplace policies, right? And I can have lots of trouble. But I could actually be gambling while I'm talking to you on you know, casinos, and there is no written policy for my, my job. And I think those are the sorts of public health things. We want to elevate those things so we can have a healthier conversation on how to maintain those things. It struck me that actually people who work in finance who are constantly gambling on the stock market, they're gambling on whether a stock goes up and down. And obviously, this is not going to be dubbed as a sort of gambling addiction, but potentially they are. They're addicted to it. Well, no, they are. I and mean, that's the whole thing about our language. If we change the name of the stock market to the gambling market and all you're doing is instead of betting on whether Liverpool beats Arsenal, you're betting on whether or not Amazon goes up or down. It's technically the same thing. Now, I'm not a finance expert at all, but when I've had patients come in and they say I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars spending on the stock market, and I think about it, I can't stop. I have to be around in 24 hours. I've lied to my family and friends. I'm consumed by it. That's the experience of addiction. So in their medical charts, I put gambling disorder, and they've never spent a dollar inside a brick-and-mortar casino. I had a guy last week, it was $10 million that he's lost in the stock market. Now, I have no idea in understanding these where he's lost it. And I said, where does the money go? You know, that's all the things that many of us don't quite understand. Does it go to uh, the house like a casino? Does it go to the stock market? Does it just go poof? Does it vanish? These are all the mysterious things. The stock market is regulated, of course, but these newer financial tech software are not regulated per se. So there's nothing stopping you and I today from going on to any of these financial uh, trading and putting large amounts of sums, having no training in any financial experience and us doing that today. And trading on very sophisticated financial platforms, things like options and day things and various other financial uh, securities and, and technical things that I don't understand. 
But at the end of the day, it does feel like that. And I think that's where we as a society have to have a better conversation because should people be allowed to do that? Well, you can gamble any any sport or any game of chance, and you don't have to get a license or you don't have to do any of those things. So from a consumer standpoint, those are all the things that are currently available. So it's a very interesting question because people have argued, well, look how many people have made tons of money in the stock market. And when you actually think about it, it's kind of like, well, how many people have really made life-defining generational wealth trading on the stock market? Is it 10% of people who do this? Is it 40%? Is it less than 1%? We take a parallel experience. How many people can make money professionally gambling? It's a tiny percentage of people who do it on a regular basis. So I think it probably makes sense that in such a complicated world, such as finances, there's probably only a small percentage of people. I have no data. This is just my opinion. Probably just a small percentage of people who can really do very well financially making money off the stock market. Is there such thing as a 12-step program for gamblers? Is Gamblers Anonymous a thing? Well, because we view gambling as an addiction and because Gamblers Anonymous has been around more than almost 60 years, we know that the traditions of 12-step fellowship really, really work. Uh, we know Gamblers Anonymous is now available uh, online, you know, gamblersforrecovery.net, I think is the website. And you can now get online meetings with people across the world at any given time, which is really amazing. So that's definitely a, an easy first step for anyone concerned about their own gambling behavior to seek out others who are going through it to get guidance and support. But 12-step is not professional treatment, right? It's support and it's crucial for a recovery to have that community and safety. But the first step is always going to be professional treatment. And just like if you had a problem with your car or if you had a problem with you know, plumbing at home, some of us might try and do it ourselves by watching a few YouTube videos, and it might work a little bit, but if you really want to get the job done right, you need to go seek professional care. And I think that's been the struggle with our field, because when we think about the experience of, again, men and women with gambling disorder, they oftentimes don't make the link from their emotional and physical pain to that it could be an addiction. Again, they think, the reason I'm not sleeping, the reason I'm having so many fights with my wife, the reason I'm so miserable isn't because I have an addiction. It's because I don't have good luck. I don't have enough money. And they don't recognize that what actually is the underlying reason for all that emotional pain is gambling addiction. So the first step, if people have that strength and courage, is to go reach out to a mental health professional or a gambling or an addiction treatment specialist and get an evaluation. Just get a, hey, what's going on with my body and my brain? I think when it comes to medical problems, right, chest pain or cancer stuff, abdominal pain, a lot of folks run to the physician. They can't wait because they know something's wrong and they're scared and they want to know right away. But there's still a lot of people, right, who ignore stomach pains or chest pains for decades until it's too late, right? Um, you know, eating disorder, and I know that's a condition you're uh, familiar with, that's the same kind of thing. Like what, what's the message that it would take to get someone with an eating disorder to seek help. By definition, many times in er, you know, early or middle stages of the eating disorder, there's that denial. There's, I don't have a problem. And how dare you ask me to go see a professional? So it's a similar story with gambling. But definitely we'll always try to get families. And uh, they're the ones that oftentimes can see the signs first. 
to have families say, encourage their loved one to go get help, or they themselves go get help and say, I don't know how to deal with my husband. He's spending money. He's constantly irritable. He's constantly lying to me about my gambling and I hate it. What do I do? So all that folds back into that simple theme. If you're suffering from problems, if you're having emotional pain or uh, mental pain or physical pain, and you think it may be related to gambling, seek help from an addiction or gambling specialist first. And then just to sum up the four pillars of recovery that you've identified, will you just cover those quickly? So if you came into my office and we were working together on an addiction, I'd say, here are the four pillars of recovery that I want us to focus on. Number one is home. What can we do to establish a safe home environment that does not have the addiction triggers inside that environment? Whether it be gambling apps, whether it be gambling, whether it be other family and friends that are stressing you out. How do we make sure your home environment is a safe space to build your recovery from? And if you're experiencing homelessness, you can imagine how hard that would be. So we work on, again, finding that safe space to build recovery from. Number two is working on physical and mental health or just health in general. And inside physical health, we're going to focus on sleep hygiene, healthy nutrition, physical activity. Inside mental health, we're going to focus on obviously treating the mental health conditions, depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar disorder, whatever is going on. That's health. Third lane of recovery is purpose slash usefulness. In your recovery journey, if you don't have a sense of purpose or usefulness, your recovery journey will stall at some point. Because what good is it to be completely abstinent or not engaging in your behavior of addiction, but have no other outlet for your energies? And I think that's where people really stall the most because they're like, this is okay, what do I do with my time? With a lot of our gamblers, they have so much time on their hands now. They're literally, what do I do? And that's really stressful. So finding your purpose, finding a sense of usefulness is critical. There are no medications for that. There's no magic conversation that I can say to anyone to say, okay, go off and you know be a writer or something. But when we focus on that in recovery, those are the things that really get people excited, but oftentimes get people really scared. Because what do I do? Because I don't really know. I don't even know how to log on to a Zoom. So how do I start? Right. So that's the third lane, finding purpose and usefulness. And I think that's really great. And the last, and I think this is probably the most important, reestablishing a community connection. One of the best books in addiction is written by, you know, a fellow Englishman, Johan Hari. He hit it right on the head about addiction being a disease of uh, lost connection, of loneliness. And that when we restore positive social connections, that's what creates the bridge of healthy dopamine flowing. Even things like we're doing right now, these kind of podcasts, these are connecting with people and listening to podcasts and connecting with others. But connection is really the antidote to loneliness. And can, that, of course, is the driver to a lot of addiction. A lot of folks, of course, say, well, no, my alcohol, my gambling, all that, that helped me feel better. And you said it earlier, it helps you feel better momentarily, but it doesn't create a long-lasting, healthy connection with anybody. I can't think of any gambling patient I've worked with where the majority of their gambling was done with other people. The majority of their gambling behavior was done in isolation by themselves. And that makes sense, is that they're gambling to get away from problems, they're gambling to escape, and unfortunately, when you gamble by yourself, that doesn't make 
more joy, it just creates more damage. So home, health, purpose, community. And that's a nice roadmap for any therapist to use. And it's a nice roadmap for when you're in recovery to say, well, what do I need to do a little bit better at? Because if you're only doing, let's say, two out of those four lanes well, you can see why recovery doesn't feel great. Or you can see why there might be starts and stops in your recovery journey. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And Dr. Fong, you're doing incredible work. And I just am so grateful for you to take time today to talk to us. And for what I mean, I think has been a truly educational and enlightening podcast episode. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. This is terrific. If people want more information, they can look at our website, uclagamblingprogram.org. And I'm sure you have other links up there onto your podcast for our local treatment providers there in the UK. I do know of a program, GamCare UK, which does uh, provide a lot of the uh, no-cost treatments for folks in the UK there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Thank you.